Hello, and welcome to ACX Everywhere 2023. I'm Andrew Wilson, and this episode is a series of candid conversations recorded at an ACX Everywhere meetup in Washington, D.C. in September of 2023. Spoiler alert, the first voice you're going to hear is Professor Robin Hansen from George Mason University, which is pretty cool. If you're familiar with ACX, you can skip the intro. The conversation starts about two minutes and 45 seconds in. If you're new here, ACX stands for Astral Codex 10, which is a rationalist blog written by Scott Alexander. Scott is a doctor on the U.S. West Coast, currently working on new models for mental health care at Lorian Psychiatry. So, rationalism is hard to define, so the following definition is taken from the About page at astralcodex10.com. Quote, the rationalist community, unquote, is a mostly online subculture of people trying to work together to figure out how to distinguish truth from falsehood using insights from probability theory, cognitive science, and AI. So if that's rationality, rationalism, what is Astral Codex 10? Well, again, paraphrasing the ACX about page, Astral Codex 10 started as Scott's personal blog, Slate Star Codex, and it grew out of the rationalist community mentioned previously. In practice, the articles on ACX tend to focus on reasoning, science, psychiatry, medicine, ethics, genetics, AI, economics, and politics, with some history and philosophy sprinkled over the top. The amazing thing about ACX meetups is you get to have the opportunity to have amazing conversations in real life about those topics with a great community of people. I have personally attended more than 50 ACX meetups, and I have had phenomenal conversations at each and every one. I'm doing this podcast because it's hard to know what an ACX meetup is if you've never been to one, mostly because people don't believe you when you tell them about it. My hope is that these recordings make it easier for people to discover ACX and to hopefully get a sense of whether or not ACX might be for them. And just to make it more personal, if you want more high-quality conversations in your life, ACX might be for you. Listen to the conversations here, and then, yeah, I just think you'll get a better idea. So, if you're interested in attending an ACX meetup in the fall of 2023, go to astralcodex10.com and search for fall 2023 meetups. You will find a list of over 170 meetups happening around the world in September and October of 2023, and hopefully there's one near you. Thanks for checking out these conversations. I hope you find them as interesting as I do. All right. Well, what's what's on your guys' mind? I know what's on my mind, and but I always, you know, too easily dominate conversations. So I have to start out with. <laughs> but we're here. On your mind. I was partially here for you, Professor Ron. Okay. You know, so I would love to hear you talk about what's in your mind. Actually, I have something on my mind that you talked about recently. Yeah, and it was this statement you made that we as humans are quite good at detecting advertisers' manipulation techniques. So we will be pretty good at detecting when AI strikes, tries to, AI systems and people behind them try to manipulate us. And we would build those systems. So love right. to hear your thoughts on. Was it just really simple point? So you're welcome to push back. But the general idea is like humans have been in a really wide range of communication environments for a long time. Right. We've had a wide range of different kinds of people talking to us with different agendas in different contexts with different technology. So we've learned to calibrate. Right. <laughs> that is with each new environment, we try to judge on average, well, how accurate is it? <laughs> how misleading can it be? You know, what sort of things do I need to look for? And that's just a robust way to deal with any new thing. 
They don't need any special regulation for that. Mm -hmm. We right. just need to say, hey, this is a new thing. Watch out. And then people do. And then over time, they'll decide which things they can trust how much. Mm. But that's, that's my instinct as well. But wouldn't the, I guess the obvious pushback here would be, wouldn't AI take that into account? Well, if there's all the other ones are also take that into account, right? All the other mediums by which people are trying to influence you, they're all trying to take into account how you react to it. Nevertheless, you can still roughly calibrate. Also, one thing I think the youth have been advertised at for literally their entire lives now. Right. <laughs> like, it's like nonstop manipulation. And I think they... But that, that was true in my youth, too. And I'm... Right? Okay, like... No, it is. Definitely a whole century of, of, you know... But it's not just advertising manipulating. Your parents have been trying to manipulate. Your friends are trying to manipulate yeah. you. Churches are trying to manipulate. Everybody's been trying to manipulate everybody for a century. And for a very long time. Haven't people been successful at that, you would say? People, I think people are roughly successful at calibrating. They are roughly successful at knowing for each channel how much they can trust it, what things mm -hmm. to watch out for. You know, different channels. Some channels are just noisy and you can't trust it very much and people just know that. And it would be better maybe if you could get better signal. But, you know, so basically for each channel, if people don't trust it much, then you want to ask, how could we give you more reliable signals, more calibration or something so you would trust us more? Mm -hmm. So what's the role of philanthropy in terms of empowering people so they can easily build the trust? Well, philanthropy in general, you should be looking for things that would be underproduced without it. So to an mm -hmm. economist, we have concepts of externalities, right. uh, coordination failures, et cetera, and you should be looking for those failures. Uh, and it, it's not, you shouldn't just have a good thing and pay for it because if the good thing would have been paid for enough anyway, then right. why pay extra? You should look for the failures, look for the things that we would do too little on. Mm. Are there any obvious low-hanging fruits that you foresee that we should invest in now when... So for information, what you want is certification and ratings. I mean, those would be the things that make information sources more reliable. Somebody going in and scoring them on for accuracy, you know, obviously, you know, we've got in news media, we have people who check other people's news and rate it. Right. Forums in which they can be challenged and right. questioned and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. How much do you see the role of attribution or making sure that people have, who have done this sort of acts in the past. In all the other sources, if somebody is not attributed, you can discount it to the degree you think appropriate. And, and they know that. So if they want to be anonymous, let them be anonymous as long as you know they're anonymous. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're pretending to be somebody you're not, that's a problem. As long as people can own their name, <laughs> right. their brand, right. yeah. and then, you know, they can speak with a known brand or they can speak anonymously and, you know, maybe trust them less. Can I ask a, well, actually, if, I would like to hear about Age of M and hear about like where, what your thoughts are now. Watch some videos, obviously, on that. Uh, actually, I'm just going to go with that. I, I'm curious because it looks, it seems like it's, it's, fa it's coming sooner than, than I would have thought when I first heard you talk about it, but I don't know. I think it's coming at the rate I expected, Okay, <laughs> but I didn't realize it was a deadline coming soon. When I wrote Age of M, I wasn't really thinking about fertility enough. So in the last few weeks, I've come more to realize that uh, you know, around 2070, 50 years from now, world population will peak. Soon afterwards, the world economy will peak. Then we'll start falling. And when world economy is a substantial fraction below its peak, innovation will be that fraction slower. So when the economy is one-tenth its peak size, innovation will be one-tenth the peak innovation rate. That means basically innovation is going to come to a halt. And it's not going to reappear until the world economy rises back up to its peak level. So the age of will be on pause... <laughs> If it doesn't appear before that deadline, it'll have to wait till after the economy rises again. So we're going to have this period, perhaps several centuries of declining economy and then a new revived higher, you know, 
increasing fertility that increases population back up again till we reach our pre pre peak level at which then maybe age of M can happen. So now we've got like, I don't know, a 70 year deadlock yeah. and age of M happen in the next 70 years. I would say the odds are against it, honestly, yeah. but I hope it would same for AI. I mean, we have a 70 year deadline to get human level AI. And if we do, then won't matter how many people there are so much anymore. We'll have lots of AIs to substitute, but if we don't, then we have this long pause and this long pause is kind of a disturbing scenario because first of all, we rely on innovation a lot in our world. So a world without innovation is a pretty disturbing thing. Secondly, lots of things we rely on have scale economies where when the economy gets smaller, we'll have to throw things away that we have now because we can't afford that scale. And the most likely revival of fertility is going to be through very insular cultures, but most of which today are fundamentalist religious cultures. Indeed. And if you look at what they're like, <laughs> they throw away a lot of stuff we value. And if they rise the way they are growing now, they a lot of stuff we value will be thrown away. And they also don't promote innovation very much. So it'll be hard to restart innovation. If the world is full of that sort of people as the revived fertility, they may go on another few centuries before they allow much innovation to happen again. So pretty disturbing scenario. Yeah, we are. Uh, this is ACX meetup in Washington. We're literally on the street. So everyone is playing and just doing a great job. And it's yeah. Anyway, there's four of us. I'm Andrew. I'm setting this up. If you want to introduce yourself, feel free. If not, not. Uh, yeah, Felipe, I'm from Brazil. I'm a recent graduate from Georgetown and I'm my first ACX meeting here. So wow. excited to be here. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Dipesh. I'm founder of an ML Mac Edge Machine model attribution competition. So excited to learn more about everyone here. And this is my first meetup as well. Oh my Lord, this is, this is awesome. And sir. I'm Robin Hansen, associate professor of economics, George Mason university, long time hunt, pundit, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Was, I heard, I heard a couple days ago that overcoming bias meetups in New York were almost one of the first rationalist meetups. Right, is right. that, is that, that's right. Is that yeah. your understanding? All right. I didn't know that I was, I was told that it makes a lot of sense thinking about it now, but no, welcome. It's an honor to meet you, sir. And yeah, after that, any questions? Any more? Any more questions? Anyone? He was doctor was saying that we no one pushes back enough, so maybe maybe some podcasts are so boring when people aren't arguing with each other. Yeah, I was, was going to push back a little more. On, coming back to the previous point, well, I think the media case in which I think people have, have been, the media has been very successful in even though we adjust and as we were growing up with propaganda and and, and media and getting bombarded with people trying to influence us. How do you, how do you couldn't understand the point of calibration exactly as it seems to me that most people, the vast majority of people have been fooled and haven't been able to adjust and, and, and see through that, I guess. If that makes sense. Sorry. That was a, a little, uh, well, they're fooled as much as they want to be. Okay. <laughs> you may not like how much they want to be, but you know, they got to do something. They got to talk about something. So um, the, the key question is, say you've got some source like the media and they're fooling people some percentage of the time and people are allowing that and you think, no, that's bad. I want to fix that. Okay. Mm -hmm. We say, well, how are you going to fix it? You say, I want this other power, power to be authorized to restrict this first media. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go, well, why should I trust that second one right, more right, than the first one? Right, right. And you're going to go, because I'm running it. I'm going to go, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> but it's international. That's like IEA sort of thing. What I trust is if there's a bunch of different sources and they each talk shit about the other ones and I get to decide who to believe. Absolutely. So you're welcome to be another voice talking yep, shit about yep. the other voices. Of course. Okay. But if you say, no, I want to be in charge of which voices you get to listen to, I'm going to say, that sounds a lot more 
dangerous from my point of view. Previously, I could just trust you if I believed you and not if I didn't. But now you're going to be the one source that approves all the others. Yeah, right. I don't want that. I agree with that. I There's no other option here, really, to have a bunch of sources. And you can talk shit about some or praise the others. And each of us decides which of them do we believe. But there are like levels in attribution, right? Like the first level is, I know you did it. Second is, I know you did it and I can prove it. And third is, I know you did it and I can prove it to the rest of the world. And if you get that third level of attribution, then it wouldn't matter if it's an entity you disagree with because they can prove the rest of the world. Each of these sources can try to achieve those levels of attribution, but I don't want to empower somebody else to tell me who to believe about those things, you know? But yes, different sources will be trying different things to get you to believe them. And they'll be saying, look, we're giving you direct access to the truth. Like, you know, a TV camera says, you can believe us because we're just showing you the camera. This is the reality here. And that's their trick, of course. Of course, they they very selective of where the camera goes, but still, you know, there's a way in which you can sort of believe it because of that, right? Academics say, well, this was peer reviewed. You know, other people have their different tricks for getting you to believe them. And, and when I'm listening to one source and I kind of believe them because of the story they tell, well, I want some other source to tell me, no, no, you shouldn't listen to believe them because of that. Cause look at these tricks they could play. And I go, oh, I didn't see those tricks. Sorry. Okay. So now I'm more skeptical, but you got to let me hear all the criticisms from all the sources about each other. Right. And wouldn't that account in the evidence that I talked about, that they can prove rest of the audience wrong with that third level of attribution? That typically happens in cyber attacks. Let's say U.S. did a cyber attack on other country. When U.S. attributes them, no one would believe them because it's a U.S. entity. So there, there's a lot of interesting things media could do that it doesn't do now. So, for example, nowadays, you know, with a claim, they might have a link to some source. You go look it up. Like if it's about an academic article, they'll link the article. But a thing they could do that almost nobody does is just post a bond if I'm wrong. Proof payable if I'm wrong. All sorts of media could have these bonds posted next to every other sentence, right? Saying, you know, this $1,000 if anybody proves this sentence wrong. That would make me believe them wrong seeing those little bonds next to everything. I don't see any of those bonds. That makes me worry. Like, why aren't they posting these bonds? Presidential candidates could do that or political candidates, right? right. You remember George Bush Sr. said no new taxes, promised it, and then he changed his mind. Well, if he had posted a bond, you know, payable if he lied about the tax thing, then I could trust him more because I know if he lied, then pay about a big money, right? Yeah, that's perhaps. just an example of them. There are many ways that people could try to persuade us more that they don't. Right. So I got to conclude that on average, people aren't prioritizing accuracy that high, honestly. Ah. Okay. They want to be entertained. They want to have something easy to talk about with their friends. Yes. They want to be engaging. They want to be on topic in fashion, eloquent, just high status, prestigious. Those are the things they mainly want out of talking and their media channels. And accuracy really isn't that high up on their priority list. And there's no way to force people to have a higher priority on accuracy if they don't want it. I agree with that. I'm just, just, I'm on the same page on that. I guess I just don't see how it translates to AI as much. AI is the same thing. AI is made by people. Right, right, right. Course, and yeah. It's a thing that it says various things and you have to decide whether to trust it. And of course, they're right. not stable at the moment. So anything you did now wouldn't be very useful because these things are changing really fast. So you might as well wait till they get a little more stable before you think about doing anything. Mm -hmm. well, one way you should just tell everybody, which they already know, hey, you can't trust this out much. It's new and we don't really know how reliable it is. Yeah, buyer beware at Caveat Tour. That's going to be more... Well, I mean, I think like a lot of people are, I mean, God, I don't feel safe online generally. I mean, I take care of basic security stuff, but like smarter people than me have gotten fished in the last week, like within a mile of sitting, right? Like, and it's just going to get better. So yeah, I don't know. But reputation, like Balaji talks about it, like pseudonymity being like something fine, as long as proof of identity 
which I mean, we're throwing all these words around, obviously terms, but I don't know. I'm not a crypto person. I'm not an AI person either. I'm not hard science. So I don't, I don't know, but I think, I think, do you think reputation or maybe different ways reputation might work in the future to, pre to prevent against, well, I don't know. There's many kinds of reputation. Okay. What matters is reputation for what? <laughs> Okay. You can repu have a reputation for being entertaining, reputation for being well-connected, yep. reputation for never being proved wrong. You know, people are shopping around for different kinds of reputation and some huh. of them decide which ones they find persuasive. But, you know, it's, it's a big space of possibilities and people are searching the space. On the one side, what to produce to get people to listen to you. On the other side, what to be looking for. Yep. The reputation of influence operations or cyber attacks like Stuxnet, US, Iran, nuclear sort of domain. In that domain, the reputation is this country does things in this very clandestine manner and then refuse the attribution. But then other entities like cybersecurity firms find out who did it. And then U.S.'s president gets embarrassed because he was promised that this wouldn't be leaked. No one would be able to figure out this came from the U.S., but ultimately did. Would you say that kind of reputation is the most important form of deterrence for this? It's not obvious why it's the most important. It's fine to have it included in the mix. Mm. So, so I teach undergraduates. And one of the strongest kinds of things that persuades undergraduates is, is they like the status quo, whatever it is. <laughs> they don't know what the status quo is. But if you tell them the status quo is A and ask them if they like B, they don't like B, they like A. Tell them the status quo is B and they like B and they don't like A. I mean, you know, huh. it, basically people pretend to be like rebels and radicals and all that stuff. But most people <laughs> are just really very conservative conformist about the world as it is. Yep. Yeah, that checks out with my experience. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you got to overcome that, but it's really hard to get people to endorse changes. Yep. Yeah, I jumped to Gerard with that. I know a lot of people are talking about Gerard these days, but yeah, the mimetic desire thing, right? right why do we like things or want things? Because we, we see other people wanting them. And my experience is it's a lot. It is a lot of that, but but I don't know. Uh, someone else. <laughs> I've spent a lot of my life like thinking of proposals for change and not realizing the game that's at foot in the proposal for change. I, I think the basic model most people think should be happening is masses recognize elites who oversee experts who make choices. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're not really interested in hearing proposals for change from anybody but legitimate elites, which I'm not. Huh. So I got to get elites to endorse things if anybody's going to listen because basically fundamentally the only time people are ever willing to consider change is where sufficient elites endorse the change and put their elite status on the line. That's the sort of thing people then, if the elite is aligned with them, trusted by them, they're more willing to give it a, a listen. What kind of elites are we talking about here? Is it the politically specifically, you think, or more general? So humans just have this general capacity right. for prestige, right, right, and, right. and a lot of things count for prestige. So basically, prestige includes everything impressive, <laughs> counts for prestige. So your looks, your athletics, your articulate, your connections, your wealth, your degrees, your power, all of these things count for prestige. And people do weigh all those things together. So, you know, in some sense, prestige is more accepted as for leadership, basically, where experts are not really accepted for leadership. You, the fact that you know stuff doesn't mean people accept you as a leader. They need a leader to give them suggestions for change. Leaders are allowed to be bosses, are allowed to be politicians, heads of foundations. Those people don't actually have to know shit. That's not imp so important for people that they know shit. What's important is that they be prestigious enough and have the right sort of aura and style that seems appropriate for being that sort of a leader. Hmm. Fortunately. 
So a lot, I mean, I, a lot of the institutional changes I'd like to make are to get rid of elites out of things. <laughs> and so unfortunately, like this is an obstacle that people don't want to get rid of elites. They, they want them to be there as intermediaries. And as symbols as well, do you think? Is the symbolism, yeah? Sure. Yeah. Yep. yeah, just like, this is what we are. These are our virtues, our values embodied, right? And then it's, yeah, there's some place to organize around, right? They, Alignment. They, they symbolize us. Yes, there so, it is. Yep. So, so in order for us to be self-respecting, we need our leaders to be people we can be proud of and that we're, we can be proud to point other people to. Yep. So in UK, for example, recently leaders have recognized the importance of academic on collaboration with the rest of the Europe. So they are selectively choosing on things they want to participate on. And in this case, the elites have agreed with scientists that the borders should not be considered in the scientific collaboration. Do you have any thoughts on how we can achieve the similar thing for Sino-Western safety-related research that we would need for AI specifically? What? The big thing happening with U.S.-China relations at the moment is the U.S. is really putting the squeeze on China. They're not happy with it. And we did, we initiated this and we are pushing strong and they're squealing. So that's going to color any other cooperation you want to do with them. They're going to get, you know, you, you've got our arms twisted behind our back. You're pushing us down on the ground. Oh, and you want us to cooperate with my left hand? What? Mm -hmm. right. You know, they're just not going to be in the mood for cooperation at this high level of conflict moment. Sorry. <laughs> Talk to Biden about why they chose this moment for conflict, but if you're trying to get cooperation at this moment, you chose the wrong time. <laughs> yep. Somebody picked a fight. Yeah. Yeah. No, Trump started it and then Biden continuing for sure. Yeah, no, it's... They're doubling down big time. Yeah. No, the... Yeah, the chip ban for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like neutering their ability to make it to the next level in terms of a tech, tech ladder. So, I mean, they will obviously make domestic chips, but... From what I read, it seems, yeah, they're, they're a couple of years behind at least, but who knows? There, there's a lot of really smart people in China from my experience. May I ask one thing of the two new people just from ACX? How did you, how did you find out about ACX or rationalism or less wrong? Do you want to start or? Go ahead. Well, so I don't have a good story, I guess. I was always interested in these topics, I guess. I think the first rationalist argument that is trademarked rationalist, I guess, that I got a context into was the simulation argument back in... I think when I was in high school, so that's maybe seven years ago, I remember discussing with my friends all the time, are we in a simulation and trying to think of counterexamples, counterarguments to that, which was really hard. Uh, and then a big moment for me was during the pandemic, I guess, I think maybe the first text I read by Scott was categories are made for men, either that or more, more than you want to know, ivermectin, more than you want to know. One of those two, I think, were big. And then Moloch as well. And then my group of friends in Brazil, uh, we're all using ACX lingo every day. So we were... <laughs> referring to a Moloch problem here and reminding us that the categories are made for men problem there. And then that's how I found out about rationalism. And that is awesome. Uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got here, I guess. Yeah. During pandemic, I was in Mexico uh, and I realized I need to go pretty extreme on the rationality end because I was seeing how people were not really following, you know, basic advices about uh, how to deal with safety stuff. So I moved to this house in Berkeley, group house, and turns out this was one of the houses that had a lot of readers of this blog and less wrong forums. And the way they were thinking about world was like radically different. And it allowed me to get into this mindset of actively looking for things I'm wrong about. And I read a lot about this through mm -hmm. them. So 
that was my introduction. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. You guys want to keep going? We can. If you want to take a break, we can. Like, um, there is no, there are no rules. <laughs> Whatever. I'd love to continue. Yeah. I, I was curious to hear what was in your mind early on. Yeah. Was it the stuff we were talking about or was it something well, else completely? I've been thinking about fertility lately. So I oh, gave right. you a brief, brief right. summary of that before. Um, uh, yeah. Well, you know, previous months I thought a bit more about AA risk because that was in the, right. in the, in the topic, but I'm pretty not worried at the moment, I guess. So, so you guys know who Paul Ehrlich is? He's a biologist who in the 1970s, a book called The Population Bomb, yes. he forecasted that the whole economy and society was going to come down crashing soon because of ecological problems. He was, of course, wrong, but people today still celebrate him as a hero, hero right. of the warning about things, even though his warning was just way off. Yep. So I wonder if that's how AI risk is going to play out now. Like I'm thinking 20 years from now, all the people now are saying, oh my God, we're almost about like to get overrun by AI. They should look a little silly, but I'm predicting people say, no, they were just too early, but it's the, the problem's almost here and it's still mm. just as big a problem. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Do, do you think that's the most likely scenario that in 20 years or maybe more, we'll, we'll actually have to worry about? Most likely nothing substantial, big will happen in the next 20 years. Yeah. Yes. Like, okay. Wait, most people won't lose their jobs in 20 years. That is, right, there'll, right. there'll be progress like we've had for the last 70 years, but it'll be in the range of the kind of progress we've seen for 70 years. Mm -hmm. You know, new algorithms, new systems, new capabilities, new things automated, but... But do you think there's going to be a threshold that maybe in 20 years things will pick up and most people will lose their jobs or is it a gradual thing? At some point in the next couple centuries, <laughs> there might be a 10-year period, say, where a labor force participation goes from, say, above 60% where it is now to, say, below 20%. Okay. That is in 10 years, well, in a 10 year period, say. So I just recommend people get insurance against that. <laughs> and with the insurance, you don't have to know when it's going to happen. That's the whole point. The premiums are cheap when you're not very sure in any one period if it's going to happen. And that's just the obvious thing to do about that problem. Set up insurance and buy it. And this is a fine time to remind people of that since everybody seems to be worried at the moment, but it's not going to happen in the next 20 years or probably the next 40. But the problem is if it doesn't happen in the next 70, then yeah, I'm guessing it doesn't happen for the next 200 because yeah. We innovation comes to a halt. Yep. No, we've been in DC the last couple of days, and I was I saw I've seen so many people walking around with kids. It made me really happy. Like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, California. I'm from California, and yeah, a lot of it's just cost of living and stuff. A lot of my friends. Yeah, it's more culture. I think that's probably true. Yeah. No, you're right. Blaming on cost of living was probably cowardly. So no, we'll go. Uh, we'll go with culture. But I also drove drove across the Midwest, and I saw and I stopped in Salt Lake City. The opposite side of it, I saw like three or four or five like. You know, five, ten family households walking by. So, but no, that goes back to your point about the uh, the unique cultural communities optimizing for uh, for procreation. So I see a little flying bugs around here. They're scaring me. <laughs> All right, <laughs> then, <laughs> then let's uh, then let's uh, let's call it for the moment. Then, and there we are again. We are back. If you'd like to introduce yourself, you're fine. If you'd like to use a fake name, a a pseudonym, also fine. If you don't want to do that at all. Also fun. I'll go. I'm Mad Asario on the Astral Codex 10, you know, comment section. Good to meet you. I'm, I'm, my name is Ben. I don't comment that much on Astral Codex 10, but I read all the posts. Awesome. You were maybe one of the only ones who reads all the posts these days. Scott feels maybe more prolific than he was before, but maybe that's just my memory being bad. No, he's always been prolific. You know, even when he was doing those, those insane residency hours, he was still, you know, banging out. Oh, like, like 15 paragraph essays on stuff. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah, definitely has a lot more energy for that than, although he says he writes fast. Mm. I don't know what that means exactly, but probably related. 
Well, he's talked about how his brother is excellent at math and how he can't do math for, for you know, very well. Yeah. And it takes him a while. You no, know, I can write. I, I think I can write well, but but I, I can't I can't write like Scott writes. It does. It sucks you in. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Meditations of Moloch was my red pill. Like I read it right when it came out and I'd never heard about it. But then I went on it and I just I just, yeah, rabbit rabbit hold it. Well, I've been talking about that concept for years, but it was nice. It's not nice to be able to put a name to it. Right. Yeah. That Scott does have a gift for that, a name and sort of a short story handle on something that's been rattling around in the community for a while. And then uh, he, yeah, he, 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 he does make a good on-ramp for a lot of these concepts. Meditations is a big, a big one. I'm, I'm sure you're not the only one for whom it was the on-ramp, right? Yep. Probably not. Two gentlemen who were just talking here before, this is their first meetup actually nice. jumped on. So I was just asking them and yeah, one from Brazil and then the other one found it when he was traveling and ended up in a rationalist house in the Bay Area where he, he really jumping in hundred percent, right? That's if, awesome. If you don't mind me asking what were their sort of, sort of whatever post turned them on or was meditations on Moloch was one, I think on God. And now I'm, now I'm embarrassed on favor of niceness and civil niceness and civilization i think is one nice mm, and then the other gentleman he, he mentioned another one that i am that i am that i'm blanking on but is he it? said it was one or two and then he found all of his friends the gentleman from brazil and then yeah they just the lingo right you start using the because moloch like it's a name for something right and all these things like you said scott names things very well and then you start using the name yeah and then it's all over <laughs> the toxoplasm of rage right. to be another good one for that Absolutely. Yeah. I've explained to so many people what Moolock is, and it, it just, just clicks something. Yeah. Because everybody knows it, you know, you can, once you can name it, you know, when you can name a demon, it loses its power Indeed. or some of its power. Yep. Also, I think John mentioned something about a happiness and post rat yeah. theory. I would love to hear this. Yeah. So, so I, I've been reading the, I read the sequences years and years ago, and I've been reading, you know, ACX and, before that, all you know, but I never actually con engaged with the community at all until about a year ago. And now I'm sorry I didn't do it earlier, <clears throat> but because of all the cool conversations and 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 you know people with whom you can have weird conversations and they take it seriously, and then they hold you accountable to your ideas. They don't agree, but they take your 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 proposal seriously. So one one idea I had. I, had this rattling around my head for a while. And that's one of the reasons I, I just needed a group I could talk to about this sort of thing is the idea that, so, you know, in a typical utilitarian construct, something like happiness or, you know, other words that people use to basically say happiness, human flourishing, stuff like that, it seems to be sort of a, a terminal value. All your utilons, all your calculations for utility, all of your decision-making is based around how much happiness uh, you, can, you can create for yourself, for others, as a whole. And there's different sort of flavors of that whole idea, but I maintain that happiness uh, cannot possibly be a terminal value because, you know, well, here's, here's my take on it. And this is, this is why I came up in a post-rat context. Mm -hmm. I think the difference makes rationalism, rationalism, the fundamental sort of concept is that you have a brain with which you make sense of the world, but that brain is constantly, always, forever, tirelessly, ceaselessly lying to you. Right? And it thinks it's for your own good. It has your best interests at heart, but it was, you know, built by the uh, deaf, dumb, blind, idiot God of evolution. And, you know, hopefully we're hoping to do a better job of that going forward. Yep. But for now, we're kind of stuck with this lying <laughs> sack of meat. 
and and, and trying to do the best we can with it, right? I'm not yep. trying to judge on that sack. I mean, I think it's a, it's a thing of beauty and, 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 and one of the most beautiful things in the universe, or maybe the most beautiful thing in the universe. Agreed. It's still a lying sack of meat. And how do you live with it? And I think the post rats are like, I don't know. I kind of like the lying part. I don't know. I'm probably oversimplifying the whole thing. And they kind of like the lying part because one of the lies that the sack of meat tells us is that your own happiness or, or the happiness of conscious beings, the happiness of being somewhat like you as a sack of meat uh, is like the most important thing in the world. And you can immediately see how that's evolutionarily advantageous. That doesn't mean it's true, right? Because it's evolutionarily advantageous for your brain to lie to you about the fact that there's a giant hole in your field of vision. You cannot see that hole. You can only infer the fact that it's there by doing some very weird experiments, right? Absolutely. Holding your thumb at a weird angle. And you still don't see the hole. Your brain is still telling you there's no hole. You just have to infer that there is a hole. Yep. And I think something similar holds with happiness. Your brain is lying to you, telling you that happiness is a super important thing. But really, happiness is just one of the sort of carrots and sticks that evolution happened upon to be able to push us down advantageous paths more quickly, more efficiently. And of course, happiness doesn't work as a tool of manipulation if you don't, if you the manipulated don't think it is just terribly, terribly important. Like, right. But I can use my piece of meat and make my own values. And, and I can agree that, that happiness is, you know, my happiness, the happiness of people I care about, the happiness of, of animals I care about, you know, the happiness, you know, is something that, that whether or not my is lying to me about it, it's still something that I can consciously decide is something I value. Yeah. And I mean, I could, you could consciously decide that, jumping off of a building is good for you, right? Like, I think you could consciously decide anything. That doesn't make it true. I think you need something other than just, I decided, right, to make it true. And so what I maintain is that it's possible to decide what's valuable, but like your brain is lying to you about it and not lying in, in, in an obvious way, the way it's lying to you about the fact that there's a hole in your field of vision where you can, you know, run an experiment and know for sure what the truth is, right? That there is a hole there. I'm, actually look in your cornea and see the mechanism of the hole, right? Uh, instead, I think, or your retina, instead, I think it's, it's more like your physical intuitions, you know, the physical intuitions of our brain revolve around like beer chucking physics, right? <laughs> so, you know, the math of a parabola is, you know, like built into us. It's very intuitive. You don't need to learn physics to catch a baseball or, you know, throw a rock accurately. But that, those intuitions only work as long as you know, are, you know, only in the context that, that's similar to the training environment, right? The ancestral environment, the training environment for those intuitions. Yep. So certain speeds, certain masses, certain uh, sizes, as soon as things get very small, all our, our intuition, our physical intuitions break down, they get heavy, they get fast, right? Suddenly very counterintuitive things start happening. Weirdness only exists in, in the mind, not in the world, right? And the weirdness of quantum, of relativity, only exists in our mind. And I think the source of that weirdness is our, you know, evolved intuitions about physical reality, about physics. And I think something similar or analogous happens with, well, ethics in general, but, you know, terminal values in particular, where this happiness, this human flourishing, we even have a hard time really wrapping our heads around what exactly is this terminal value we're talking about. But even if we put aside the fact that we can't quite define it, I think the whole general um, concept of, of our sort of emotional well-being is kind of 
it's 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 pretty obvious that it's the manipulation of evolution, right? Like the tool it found to manipulate. Like obviously, <clears throat> the desire for sex is one such thing. A life without any sex at all, you know, for for most people is you know less happy, less uh, uh, flourishing, right? Than a life with you know an appropriate or whatever sort of sex life. To the extent where, if you can imagine somehow castrating, you know, like chemical castration seems like an abomination to right <laughs> sort of the human sensibilities where logically that wouldn't seem necessary. I think some similar, all kinds of happiness is really just a manipulation of evolution trying to say, here is the, here is the, the true, there is such a thing as moral, as, as objective morality, then you can name it as, like a name you can give it is, you know, the true utility function, right? The one true utility function. If there is such a thing, it can't possibly be human flourishing or happiness or like any human emotion. Um, at best, those human emotions can be sort of a a correlate mm -hmm. of that one truth. Does that make sense? A proxy. So basically, you would agree that oh yeah, you would agree that someone is very happy all the time. Like they would not be well suited towards survival in you know the like environment we came up towards. You know, if you have no need to go out and do anything because you're just happy, you're not going to do any of those things. And I I think today's environment it's sort of like a lot surrounded by supernatural stimulus all the time. Like. You can look at, it's very hard to die in today's society. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's really, really hard. You Even if you're homeless, yep. do fentanyl on the street. That's doable. You're not going to die, most likely, in right. a lot of developed countries. So people are more focused on, like, looking towards happiness because those base needs are more easily met. I mean, still like sex. Having children is yeah. harder, maybe. Yeah. But I guess it explains why more of the focus now. We're in a different environment that we're not evolved towards. Yeah, well, you get you get some heroin in you, and, and suddenly sex becomes a little less important, right? You got that. You got those those needs met. Yeah. Right. You wear a condom, you get the sex needs met. Right. We're cheating. Right. A condom is a wireheading. Right. In terms of um, sort of the uh, cheating evolution's hack to trying to instill in us the one true yep. utility function. Right. Um, but when when still when when talking about humans. And and we're a society of humans. Uh, we can talk about we could we can talk about you know making other people happy. You know, you know, and that's not you know that has value. That that is something that I think is important to consider. Both happiness for yourself and happiness for others. Well, there's a rub, right? So agree that you feel it has value. I just don't think because you feel it has value, and I feel it has value. By the way, I am not a machine, despite what you may have heard. I'm a machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very lifelike. You certainly are predicting what a human would say very well. Good job. <laughs> My point is, uh, joking aside, and I think this is important because we're getting to the point where, you know how you could pursue a correlate of your true objective for quite a while, but as soon as you start getting very good at it, you know, the tails diverge. I think we're the tail. We're at the tail for a, for a few things. And I think we're, you know, we're getting to the point where we're at the tail for just general sort of happiness and human flourishing. I think we need to look past that as in order, you know, I think we need to look, we need to look for our, our terminal values past just human happiness and flourishing you, to find what I, we should I, really I care there, about. There, I think there are plenty of humans that wouldn't describe themselves as flourishing. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm. Is purpose like something? That, I mean, our terms, right? Definition of terms always, right? You gotta, but, but I mean, no, but I think in terms of happiness, meaning all of these things, like, yeah, I don't know, purpose for me, like duty. These are like maybe old school 
concepts and like virtue ethics has its problems, but like also it's way better than most of the things I've found personally. Like, I don't, I don't know. Does virtue have a place in this conversation? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, evolutionary virtue, moral virtue, right? Again, the term. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So this whole conversation, you could take forever just defining the term. Right. I don't think you could successfully define the terms. No. Philosophers have been trying for longer than this podcast will last. Indeed. But, um, but look, I think at some point you have to stop navel gazing and make decisions and make choices. And in order to make choices rationally, you need to have some value you're pursuing, right? Or set of values, some function. And, and I'm totally cool. Like I get that you can choose, for example, your own flourishing or the flourishing of the people around you or your family. I think, you know, pursuit of virtue, whatever, you know, reasonable definition you want to give that. I think all of that is legitimate. I, I just, I just think that happiness as an end in itself, you can choose to pursue happiness as an end in itself, but you can't, I don't think you can logically claim that, that there is an objective moral reality and that the true value, like in capital letters, right? The true value of that objective morality is human or conscious being flourishing or happiness, you know, any kind of um, experience. We love experience, right? We're built for it. It's but but, it's but we're... all of you established so far is that that evolution, you know, has has developed creatures that value happiness. Correct. You have not actually done anything to demonstrate that it's that it's illogical to value happiness. No, no, no. Not that it's illogical to value happiness generally. Just illogical to claim that happiness is a terminal virtue. Exactly. Why is it? You know, you've you've described it. You know. I'm not, I'm not getting the bridge from evolution brought us to desire this and it can't be, be a terminal. It's impossible to logically have it as a terminal value. That's fair. I guess. So here's a, here's the connection there. This is sort of an axiom. My claim is that whatever, if there is a moral reality, then evolution must be compatible with it. Right. And if they know, no, no, the, the happiness and well-being of conscious beings of sentient beings because evolution programmed that in so that's got to be compatible with with what evolution is up to right moral reality i agree with that it, it can be yeah i'm not um, saying it has to be I, i'm not making an argument that this 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 has to be the sole sole true moral value but i'm saying but i'm not getting the argument that it can't be so so can't be because too many different things make different people happy um, and you know, again, sort of by analogy to our physical intuitions, evolution is not very smart, right? So kind of just hacks around the edges and, and get something that's sort of good enough for, to work in the ancestral environment. And so the, the more, I expect the morality programmed into us, I think my prior, right, is that the morality programmed into us is not quite accurate. In fact, it can be quite misleading outside of the training district, right? The, the ancestral environment. Um, Dunbar number, yeah, that yeah. kind of that kind of society. Yeah, those yeah. kinds of societies would be the ancestral environment. Moral intuitions work well there. I think the the folks who advocate for going back to those times or somehow sort of artificially putting us in those kinds of environments, they have a good sense that 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 will make us happier. And I think they've got a strong point. That doesn't mean that that's what we should do. And yeah. and oh, so you I'm, don't want to start mailing uh, letter bombs to people. Right. Right. Well. So, so think about this, you know, we talk about the raspberry picker, you know, that story. So if you train a raspberry, uh, an AI to pick raspberries and put them in the can, maybe what you trained it to do was to grab red things and throw them shiny things, <laughs> right? So, right. 
that can go dreadfully wrong if you have a red-nosed person, you know, and a truck off in the distance with sun glinting off of it. The machine will rip off the nose and throw it at the truck. Yep. So I think evolution taught us to pick up, you know, pick red things and, and throw it at shiny things. When the true function, right, the true objective morality might be picking strawberries, right? Mm. And so... I propose it would be at least interesting. I don't know if necessarily we could even find out what true moral, you know, objective morality would be. And if we did, I'm not, not sure what we should do. Um, I'm not trying to get to the ought at this point. Yep. <laughs> and I'm not a philosopher, so I don't have the tools to you're even do that yeah, well. You're a philosopher. <laughs> Fair enough. But but I don't have you know the training to to put this into. But so 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 maybe structure. happiness is is a projection. Yeah of the true utility function, but it's still a correct projection. Just like Newtonian physics is a projection, right, onto a smaller dimensional plane, right? The smaller dimensional the smaller dimensional environment is, you know, the usual training, right? Small low speeds, normal size masses, right? Normally huge sizes. Yep. Right. That projection of reality is a small slice of it, mm -hmm. right? Into like our experience. Yeah, I, I buy that. So getting past the, so looking for the true utility function, right? Happiness is just a shadow on the wall or however. Post-rats, right? Is that part of, I think yeah. post-rats is kind of, you get past the rationality and you realize the... Yeah, you just go for the happiness. Right? Yeah, I think the post-rats is like, look, there's a lot of good tools to grab out of rationality. They've got rationality right there in the name. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think they throw post, they throw rationality away. I think they use it to say, hang on a second, rationality isn't the purpose. Feeling good, you know, human happiness and well-being and flourishing, right? The sort of normal sort of utility thing that utilitarians chase is the thing. Why are we making ourselves miserable with all of this rationalist uh, well, schizophrenia? Be, be, before I answer that question, you know, I will point out that as a machine of limited intelligence, it could be that that valuing happiness is the closest I can get to this hypothetical utility. Could be. It could be. I, I, I think I think we can do better. I think it doesn't feel good to do better, or at least it doesn't feel good to do better now. I have fond hope that we'll one day get a technology to be able to like sort of improve upon the programming evolution gave us. But we got to be obviously very careful with that. I'm a big believer in Chesterton's fence, you know, right. stuff like that. But but I think it's I think even just understanding that, even if you just understand that happiness and the normal sort of pursuit that that we engage in is a shadow right a, a projection uh that you know that it is legitimate for sometimes happiness to be to lead you astray to give you a wrong answer of what you should do i think just having that knowledge is important and good enough and useful in a lot of con more will be more and more useful over time just like knowing that your eye is lying to you about there being a hole in your field of vision is useful to know and useful in certain contexts well, and getting back to your point, why why should we make ourselves miserable by by talking about all this rationality nonsense? And you know, I would claim that 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 there isn't a you know, as you said, there isn't a single thing that makes everybody happy the same. And and the tools that rationality can give you can help you find you know whatever goal makes you happy. You know, some mm -hmm. people are happier when they're getting closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. Some people are happier when they're getting more sex. Some people are happier when they, they live a more luxurious life. And rationality can help you figure out what that is for you and help you optimize for pursuing, for its pursuit. Totally. At the same time, the rationality can also help you say, you know what? I chased all this sex and it's not making me that much happier. Let me, let me override my natural sort of inclination, my emotional inclination for sex, right? Part of me 
is telling me my irrational part, right? It's telling me more and more sex will make me more and more happy. Like you get, you could get stuck in a loop. And if you get your rationality, you know, if you get your rational skills up to, up to snuff, you could hopefully be able to override that, use some CBT, use some techniques that you could learn to retrain irrational parts to crave things that are more, that will actually make you more happy, right? So even if all you're pursuing is happiness, I think the rationality stuff is, is powerful tool. Toolbox, absolutely. Right. You have something that we can change subjects to. We have a, I don't know, trying to get people involved, but also no pressure if you don't want to jump in. Just, uh, I just hopped in, so I'm following along. But uh, Perfect. Yeah, it's kind of a spontaneous thing, man. We can all, like, yeah, we can get back. But, uh, but yeah, did you have thoughts about that, about the toolkit or about rationality, post-rad stuff? I don't know. I kind of, post-rad for me, also people seem to go back to uh, sense-making frameworks, religions, ideologies of whatever type for me too, like mm -hmm. Catholicism and Mormonism mm -hmm. I've seen on, like mm -hmm. people, friends of mine who kind of rationalist thing, you're into it, and then you realize that humans are maybe post-rationalizing as opposed to rational, right? And then you mm -hmm. start to look for yep. for more things. But The, the post-rad thing is very interesting from perspective of like thinking about history never repeats itself, it rhymes, but if you think back to the early turn of like the 20th century when you had sort of humanism coming along and then you had sort of reaction against that romanticism and it's kind of like happening all over again in a different way but it's like the same interesting same things concepts like repeating itself and then the backlash is the the post rat i think like dostoyevsky and a lot of people like <laughs> wrote about that like yeah. and they're complaining about the humanists where everything has to be optimized like taylorism around that time yeah it was the same thing you had an increase in like industrial statistics and thing like that and like right now you have an increase in in data and people caring about like optimizing things and then eventually i guess people realize that you know what are we doing we can use these tools to actually become happy not to sort of you know increase progress or increase right gdp or science at the time i guess well have you that. have you heard of the optimization paradox I don't know if I have. No, I, I haven't. It's that... that like any target you shoot for eventually becomes like... No, no, that's something else. Yeah, the optimization paradox... Good heart's law, right? Is, ...is that in order to optimize completely, you need to put more and more resources into mm -hmm. it. And the more resources you put into just the optimization, the less efficient you're making it and the less optimal you're going to make it. So, so you can only achieve the optimal outcome by accident. Is this related to the idea that the more effort you put into optimization, the less the less context, you know, the less context switching you can do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I agree that, you know, data has become a buzzword and, and, and people spend a lot of time and effort trying to, to optimize for certain things, like optimizing the amount of money. I mean. Right. And, you know, for some people making more money lets them buy nicer things, which leads to greater happiness. But for some people making more money just becomes an endless chase and they use the money to make more money. And they're never actually using the money to do anything that makes them happy. But they believe that that's what they're supposed to be doing for one reason or another. And so I hear your point that you can be optimizing for the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the rub, right? So at some point, you got to stop and say, well, what should I optimize? You got to choose a terminal value, right? What should I optimize for? You know, or a messy combination of terminal values. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that's your heuristics, probably a good way to right. get at the same thing. Like nobody, it's hard to pick like the value that you're going to go through. Right, right. Mm -hmm. no, that's fair. I mean, like a, like a complex value, like a set of values, a, like a value tensor, mm. right? A multidimensional value. There we go. Um, that, that makes more sense than like utility alone or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But even then, I think, you know, 
I think, I think it gets tricky, right? Because the way evolution works isn't that whoever, you know, like evolution has a pretty low dimensional uh, terminal value tensor, right? Even just in biology, it's very simple, but. Could we throw out like having a huge number of surviving grandchildren, healthy grandchildren? Yeah. Is that like, that's for me, that's one of the closest I can come to with evolution, but like, I don't, I don't know. Some sort of continuation. Yeah. If having your gene survive seems mm-hmm. to be. Yeah what evolution tries to, you know, well, it doesn't try, but, but, but develops for, but at the same time, I actively do not want children. Yep. And this, this, this has, you know, this statement has totally befuddled some people in the rationalist community. So like, it's the, doesn't, doesn't nature, you know, encourage you to pass on your genes. It's like, no, I don't like my genes. I don't want to pass them on. Yeah. You know, that's, it's a bit of a wirehead, right? That's, that's, so, you know, if evolution tried to program you to be a good boy and do the evolutionary thing, you're kind of breaking evolution's heart, right? You're misaligned, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah, but I'm misaligned with what evolution exactly, says, you know, no, no strives for, but, you know, I'm aligned with what I personally have chosen to. Yeah. To huh? thrive. Revolution also, right? The bloody and tooth and claw, you know? Like. Well, sometimes, right? But one of the night, so, so, you know, the, the central sort of, there's two central dynamics, right? In evolution. One is the, the sort of mutation and competition, right? Type of thing with the bloody and tooth and claw. The other central dynamic is this tug between the fact that greedy, you know, self-centered, uh, uh organisms tend to outcompete, um, uh, you know, friendly collaborative organisms individually, but in groups, a group of collaborative organisms Absolutely. will totally defeat a group of you know, defector organisms. Yep. And a lot of the dynamics of evolution is just making those sliders back and forth. How much collaboration, how much defection. Mm-hmm. And but in the end it doesn't it doesn't care about defection or collaboration, right? It cares about this continuation type of concept you were you were pointing to earlier. Um I don't you know, so if evolution was right about about the ultimate moral proof, right? The, if there is an old, you know, an objective morality, what is the objective moral value that you should pursue? Then that objective moral value, I think, has to be continuation, right? Whatever that general concept. I don't know how to put it into a few words, but memes propagating like forward in time. You know, it's all oh, memes yeah. propagating forward in time. I don't know. It's patterns, culture, right? yeah, patterns, patterns, yeah, patterns propagating forward forward in time. Yeah, like in the like in a cellular automaton, right? The patterns that absolutely that, that Conway Conway's game. That's it. That's yeah, it, man, yeah. it's emergent qualities. Have any of you guys followed too much about Stephen Wolfram's whole concept? I a little bit, but I am not technical. I I, I have not. Nope. Anyone? No. Are you talking about the like his modeling that he's done. Yeah, the, his, the he, language, the computational. Yeah, computational sort of theory, theory. of everything. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. With with you know a basis in in you know auto- cellular and and. and you know, other kinds of, of, of calculations. I've listened to podcasts, but a lot of it, no, I don't, I can't, I'm not technical enough, like math enough, science enough to understand so it, unfortunately. He's got, he's got a new book out, I'm still working through it, called uh, The Second Law, where he tries to take his sort of, or the organizing principles of, of his physics, right, this, this computational approach, and apply it to understanding the second law of thermodynamics, right, which is basically says, you know, shattered teacups don't spontaneously reassemble, right? Uh, but but there's no real good reason why not. And, no, and this is where the sense of time gets confused. There there are good reasons why a shattered teacup doesn't reassemble. Okay. <laughs> you know, one is is that that you know there there's there there is a, there is an entropy. 
the second law of reason, which is that when you break the chemical bonds in a teacup, you need to heat it up in order to, to reassemble those chemical bonds. And so if it's not an environment that's hot enough, you know, the, the, the laws of chemistry of, of enthalpy and entropy are not going to allow those chemical bonds to form. But, yeah, but there's also the reason of, of I want to say something? No, I was just going to say, why doesn't a teapot reassemble itself if you throw the shards in a volcano or something, <laughs> right? Like, I think there, 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 there's also... It's not just that there's not enough energy. To right, right. That there's, there's a second one. There's, there's, there's probability. You know, if I throw, if I throw a shattered teapot, pieces of shattered teapot somewhere, it's more likely that they'll land in a, in a heap that mm-hmm. we would call unorganized. Unorgan- right. But one of the, but, but that's just because there are many more of those than there are states of completed teacups. That's exactly right. So it's, so it's a consequence of probability, not so much that the second law of thermodynamics. I'll add to that. I think it's not just because of probability. You're totally right about that. At least Wolfram is describing the way I understand it is that it's also not just a function of probability, but also a function of what we call ordered versus disordered, right? Okay. Because any set of rules that leads from a teacup to some, you know, to some broken pottery, you could run it, uh, any set of reversible rules, right? Like in a, in a, in a non-stochastic, in a deterministic universe, any set of rules that leads from a teacup to shattered shattered pottery could lead from shattered pottery to a teacup, right? If you just run it backwards uh, or, or even forwards under the right circumstances. But why does that basically never happen? Probability and our description of ordered, our, dis, you know, our sense of what is ordered versus what isn't, right? And he does, I'm doing a terrible job of capturing this. He captures it very elegantly. I'm glad you brought it up in the first place, at least. Yeah, yeah no, so- I recommend it to anybody. It's not terribly technical. I think okay. it's a, a great introduction to sort of his his bigger picture because it talks about something that regular physics does is a little bit fuzzy about right the second law has always been a little a little magical um, well it's it's hard to it's it's hard to you know no people i often read you know in my high school textbooks that entropy is, is a is a measure of disorder and it is in a very specific sense and that's in a different sense than than our ordinary definition of order and disorder what the second Entropy is, it's a measure of the number of, entropy is a measure of the number of ways to produce something that is statistically equivalent. What do you mean by statistically equivalent? So, so you've got all the atoms in a teacup and there's a lot of different ways they could be arranged. Only some of those we would call a teacup. Most of those we would call shards. Well, entropy doesn't care about whether or not we call it the teacup. You know, what it is, is, is the number of molecules, you know, the number of of bonds, you know, the, the, the temperature of the, of the shards, you know, the average temperature, the temperature distribution. You know, these are the statistical properties of the collection of shards. Yeah, well, uh, so, so in the book, the way Wolfram, uh, the thing Wolfram dives into is it's not just the number of bonds, but the concept he plays with is the number of bonds all, all together. So contiguous bonds, like how big is the pottery shard? Are there three or four contiguous sort of sequences of, of bonds? Are there 25 of them? So you've got different 25 shards all over the place. Is there one contiguous uh, region of time and space where all of these bonds are happening together? And then that's much more likely to be an or you would call an ordered arrangement of those, of those you know, but, but that matter. Teacup that, that all the shards have been, been fused together. Like, mm-hmm. like you throw it into a volcano that's not hot enough to vaporize it, but it's hot enough to reconfigure it. Mm-hmm. 
is still likely not to come into an arrangement we would call a teacup, even if it's one contiguous, one contiguous. piece. No, I agree. But it's if you have one contiguous arrangement of, of, of bonds, it's much more likely to be teacup-like and 25 different separate, you know, separated, right, contiguous regions. Maybe. Right? Not not sure about that. I oh, want fair. to see the math on that. Yeah, he does a great job, and and he and he he illustrates it like with all his books, with a lot of I think beautiful uh, diagrams and time diagrams of a lot of uh, automata, right? Following certain rules, reasons carefully. It's pretty dense. But but, but 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 the reason why the second law and entropy as a concept are are fuzzy is because it's 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 more conceptually difficult to wrap your mind around of. Of the, of the the measure I gave, it's easy to wrap your mind around disorder, but that means you're getting it wrong. So that causes problems. It's harder to wrap your mind around statistically equivalent states that produce the same thing I'm looking at. So, but isn't isn't the state of you know being a teacup statistically equivalent to the state that we would con call some shards of pottery? Oh, it would be. I would say it'd be statistically equivalent. If if it's an unrecognizable fuse, you know, single continuous piece of pottery that's not in the same topology as a teacup. But like, so here's what I'm saying. So if you roll a hundred dice and they all come up sixes, that's just as likely as any other series of rolls. Right. Right. It's just that but, but, most series of rolls won't have a pattern that we easily recognize. But but in terms of entropy, this this the hundred series of sixes is a different microstate than a hundred series of fives or a hundred series of something we would, we would recognize as random. Those are different microstates. Uh, yes, they are. But is the microstate of a hundred series of sixes any less likely than any other microstate? Aren't they all statistically equivalent? That's my question. But, but entropy is a, is a statement on the macrostate, not a statement on the microstate. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's our, our perception of it at least right like like what makes it entropy is defined as as a macro state property what's the macro state property is is disordered no it, like, like for the teacup it's the number of bonds the number of continuous bonds the temperature the average temperature the temperature distribution you know yes. these this this set of yes. statistical parameters so we define a certain set of parameters and you know it's probably hard to truly define it here but there's some set of parameters statistical parameters that we were like yes this counts as a teacup right and if within the space of all possible configurations the material in the teacup only a very small fraction of those possible states conform to the parameters that we would specify as yes this counts as a teacup right yes yeah okay i agree with that but any particular state at the micro level is not any less likely than any other particular state that that's 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 an or assumption that you know that 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 is a simplified assumption that's often made in physics but but there's there's a definite there's a there's a more correct definition of entropy which the different microstates can have different probabilities okay well i'll have to look into that more in my ignorance I had a lot of fun, at least, cruising through that book of Wolfram's. <laughs> you should check it Excellent. out. I think you'd enjoy it. Oh, I, I turned myself all the way down. I'm sorry I'm sitting here oh, messing no, this up. No, then, then you're saying it's it not technical. Uh, I will try to look into it more because that was probably one of the reasons why I never even tried because... It's not it's not, not technical, uh -huh. but it walks you through it enough if you okay. read slowly and carefully, if you're interested, right? Yeah. If it's the sort of thing that, that you think is interesting, I think you can get through it. Maybe a tangent on that. I also read him trying to work AI into and like making API calls mm. to like his engine, like mm. the Wolfram engine and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that I find, yeah, I find that really, really interesting. 
I don't know what that's going to look like, but if you maybe, I don't know if anyone else has an idea. So he has a great article on how Jet Chat GPT works. I think that's the title, uh, how Chat GPT works, or maybe how LLMs work. He turned it into a little book you can get on Amazon. I think it's still freely available online. And it really walks you through. If you don't understand what, you know, everybody says, oh, it's about text completion. What does that actually mean under the hood? He goes, he does a very good job of walking you through it. Even if you're non-technical, again, it's, it's work, but you can get through it without a, without a strong technical background. And so, yeah, he's been thinking about this stuff in depth. It's a little scary to, I don't know if you know about, you know, his, his, his wolf from the, the, whatever the database that he's you know, created. I don't know too much about it. Can't yeah, remember the no, that's very it. interesting because there's a long term, like going back into like the 90s, even they had, they had like people trying to create expert AI around that time. And it was based on like formalizing like expert logical systems. rules. Yeah. Yeah. yeah between things. And Wolfram, like their knowledge database is something more like that, where you have like an mm-hmm. ontology yep. of things like this is within this category yep. and so on. Yeah. And I think right now he's working on trying to sort of combine that with the more like pure connectionism of a LLM where you have like, it's just picking up these patterns in the text and, you know, it has all these deep connections between them, but it doesn't have anything like knowledge that is stored so yeah. much as like predicting these patterns. And yeah, so he's trying to like combine that. And you can imagine that'd be really powerful because, you know, if you talk to the ChatGPT right now and you ask it a different question, I'll give you the three different answers or whatever. But if it had some knowledge database and it could really like ask questions about the categorizations of things and it could do a lot a lot more potentially than it is already right now and like also the type of questions that it's stumbling on in in math and things like that yeah could maybe address that if it has sort of like a model of the world through the knowledge database So, so if i heard you right it's like today's llms extract patterns out of you know text that's been written on the internet including text about true things text about false things texts about made up things Texts about angry rants, right? All of it. But once you feed it just a a big body of of actual scientific facts, then it could extract patterns from there and you could ask it questions about about that body of facts and not just about language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it this way, like if you walk down the street and you walk down a street you've never walked down before, like you have a model of a sidewalk or I'm going to step here. And so, you know, because of that model in your mind, you would never think to like... Really good example for, it's not from, it's from transformer models, but not, not in the text domain, but in pictures, like you see, uh, AI, like, you know, a mid journey I've used, I don't know how, I don't know much about the math of the video. What well, have you, have you it? used it before? Like to get a funny looking picture? I haven't used mid journey. Okay. Well, used others. it could be any, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of times if you ask it to make a picture of a person or something, a lot of times, and one of the biggest problems that they've had is that it will have like six fingers, right, right. seven fingers. And that's like everything else about the picture. It's like insanely accurate. And it's like, it could be HDR picture. But if you ask any five-year-old like to draw a person, they're never going to draw. Well, I don't know, some five-year-olds maybe. But like, <laughs> as soon as you learn the rule that like, oh, people have five hands because that's a part of a person, then they do that. And so it's like that, like a knowledge ontology, like mm-hmm. an actual way to model the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas the text is sort of like, it might do approximate like stuff people would say if they have a good model of the world. Like if they're a lawyer and they know this thing causes that, they pick mm-hmm. up on the rule, but it doesn't actually have anywhere in this state where it's like, here are the defined rules that is knowledge. Like it's consistent static mm-hmm. and doesn't have that so much right now. 
but that would be in a way to like address it if he was somehow able to combine the two. At least that's the hope. Yeah, no, that makes great sense. And, and like in my ignorance, it feels like the way the LLMs work is it just kind of says, this is the sort of thing that someone would respond to given this prompt, yeah. right? This is the sort yeah. of thing that the internet would respond with given this prompt. And same thing with the pictures, right? And like, that's good in text format. That's great for storytelling. It's terrible for math or, you know, less good for math. And what's been scary about these LLMs, at least on the language side, is how good they've gotten at like the math without being trained on math. So imagine, and I imagine our brains are somewhat, you know, similar or analogous in some ways where, you know, let me tell you right now, half of what I do is just like, guess what would a smart person try to say next, <laughs> right? I get that wrong very, very often, but sometimes I stop and I don't just automatically continue the next cached thought or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. I actually stop and think things through and then I do access like more explicit models of the world. And I say, wait a minute, hang on. This isn't really a sidewalk. What's going on with this street or something, right? Um, this person has six fingers. That's weird. What's going on? Oh, they have an extra finger or, oh no, it was an optical illusion yeah. or something, right? That is an interesting way to think of it. Like, I mean, this is probably very fraught and neuroscientists would probably get mad if you said this, but you know, do it, do it anyway. In, in your brain, canceled. you have a Wernicke's area, right? The part for like speech and stuff. And so it's like forming all these patterns. It's very good at like, and, and not just words, but actually concepts. Like it's very good at dividing between this thing and that thing. And then, okay, dog, I have the concept of uh -huh. dog or whatever. And it's, it's more complicated than that. But like, yeah, the LLMs, like you talk about, it's kind of like that. Like it could just go on a stream of thought. That's why it's very good at like, if you could be like, all right, give me some Afrocentrist poetry, turn, turn all of Linkin Park's lyrics into Afrocentrist poetry. It's very good at that because it knows what it's learned patterns for Afrocentrist poetry and right. like these lyrics. And so it can just sort of combine them. But you're right. It doesn't have the ability to like step outside and, you know, use your prefrontal cortex or like right. models of the world and System then access two. that and decide. Is that, okay, is that this, similar to system one and system two? I don't know. I don't know if you would say that, but it's definitely like, yeah, like the system two and at least like the, you know, executive Sometimes. function, like yeah. you're, you're deciding what to say. You're deciding to think about this thing and then switching back and forth, not to just the, like the raw complete the sentence or, <laughs> you know, just continue with the language. You know, for a long, long time, there's an old XKCD cartoon that says, you know, those people who say, may you live in interesting times as if it some kind of a curse. Fuck those people. Am I allowed to curse? Oh, okay. Of course. Fuck those people, right? For the longest time, I was like, I love that sentiment. And now I think we're living in interesting times and I'm not so sure. <laughs> those people might've been onto something. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you're right about not sending letter bombs, but you know, maybe Ted Kaczynski was right and we'd probably be happier if we went back and we're hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, maybe. I don't well, think we have a choice, man. We got to roll the dice. Interesting times at the <laughs> store. I don't think we would be happier. If you would go back to, to being hunter gatherers. No, I agree. Why is that? I mean, like if I was with my current socialization and abilities, obviously I wouldn't want to go back, but. Oh, I see. Uh, so, so like memory wipe and go back kind of deal. Yeah. yeah. Just be born in, I don't know, pre-industrial time, pre-agricultural times. Huh. Damn. I, yeah. Well, without modern medicine, then I think probably not. I think if modern medicine, some kind of genetic thing, a lot of this might transfer into sci-fi. I don't know if we want to talk about sci-fi. I love sci-fi, uh, but no, there's like, no, the genetic heritage, right? Like advancer or whatever, and all these different things. It's like, no, that that's is a plot in a lot of sci-fi books. I think it would probably, it might go well if we didn't, uh, if we didn't have disease, you know, but, and we could eat everything. So maybe eventually, you know, uh, yeah. we could fix all of 
deaf, dumb, blind, idiot evolutions, you know, hacks. I don't won't call them mistakes. All of them. No, right? Why not? <laughs> You're not going to find all of them, much less fix all of them. Well, <laughs> what, what do you even mean by fix? For like, some small value of all. <laughs> um, you know, fix in terms of you know. Like, it's, you know, we should be able to synthesize our own antibiotics and, and have and have blood cells that do research on new ones, you know, inside there and make new antibiotics. Yes, exactly. But I don't think, like, evolution is just a thing that happens, you know? Like, I don't think if we were to, if, if you were to do that, then, you know, maybe something that didn't need antibiotics would emerge or, you know what I mean? Like, it's very hard to just, yes, you want to hold things statically no, in terms of, like. No, 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 I, I hear what you're saying. I'm starting to. Here's what I'm saying. The only thing that can overpower evolution, because it is a thing that happens, right, is intelligence. So I'm saying we should have smart white blood cells. Like my white blood cells should be as smart as, I don't know, who's the smartest doctor that ever lived or biologist, right? Ben Carson. Boom. I don't know that. Dr. Uh, Let's go Dr. With that. Alexander. There we go. Let's go with that. As, at least as smart as Dr. Alexander. Does that make sense? Like that's probably not enough for forever, but I think it'll give us a fighting chance for a few, you here's, know. Here's what I think. Like a million years. If you want to think about like the stock market, and this is just by analogy, like the mm -hmm. stock market has like a complex system, you know, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they had less computation, less like complex models, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you have these models, like then they did have computation and it was like the next step. And then suddenly there's another layer on top of it where you can exploit that model mm -hmm. and so forth. And so, yes, it's like intelligence, like it's a le higher level of abstraction, like you're modeling the world, like oh, we can devise like antibiotics and sort of model these things. But then there's like a next layer after that, like, okay, what happens when we do this? And then we're at this system and another, another type of being or like organization emerges and they exploit those things on that level. And so it's like a constant ever evolving game in these complex systems. And so I think like trying to hold it to like, oh, well, we can just make them this smart and it will stay like that. You know, the, well, what happens if you make it, you have something that's like completely dumb, like uh, the, the berry picker thing. Right. Uh, then it just outcompetes that smarter thing. Yeah. You know? but I don't think it's possible. No, no, you're right. I don't think it's, I don't think it's perfectly possible. And I think, you know, we're embedded agents in the universe, so we can't possibly know anything, you know, know for sure that our, our best effort won't be enough. But here's what I do think. I think we can do a bang up job compared to the mess evolution has made. And you know what? That's, that's not fair. Evolution didn't make a mess. It, a great job. I feel more like evolution, like, hey, thanks, old man. We could take it from here. Evolution you think maybe has done some window? amazing things. Huh? Time? You think maybe it's like a small window of time where that can happen. Like yeah. maybe there's post-humans or something, but maybe for the next like 50 years when we understand our things about ourselves that we didn't, but we're not good enough to change them, that we can exploit it for like 50 years maybe. I think, I don't know, this is speculative, but I have a strong suspicion that we can't achieve that without proving ourselves in ways that would challenge like the definition of human right i but think then it's we, like, be we have new beliefs first. like we've okay we've gotten rid of the, the human desire to eat we're never going to eat again we're just going to inject ourselves and then that has a new desire to like get the type of injection or whatever right you right know? Yeah, yeah 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 you know i agree i agree and if it doesn't then it won't survive for long right and and people love eating yeah i love eating i don't know i don't know if i'd want to give that one up like i love sex like the rage I don't, but God, man, this is the whole thing, right? You get rid of the, the uh, limbic system, yeah. right? I mean, that's great while everything's going fine. But yeah. then once, I mean, any kind of destabilization, anything goes wrong. Yeah. You're just a, a lotus eater at that oh point, God. right? Have you, so you talk, 
Let's bring this back to sci-fi for yeah. a minute. Have you read much uh, Greg Egan? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're uh, on the same exact bandwidth there. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. No, no, no. Go for it. All right. Well, no. I mean, you go. I would go other places with him. So you have probably read him. I read him back in the day. But yeah. Oh, okay. No, I read him. It's been a while. But I forget which were the stories, but there were the ones where they could get some, basically take a pill and... It's not like you reprogram yourself like a computer. You mm -hmm. reprogram yourself like a limbic system, so you can remove, you know, the the desire for love, or you can remove uh, anything. There was this one story. Correct me if I if I, if I misremember here, but I think it was a guy whose brain was slowly breaking or rot. You know, he had a problem, or or maybe it was a uh, a tumor, mm -hmm. or something like that, that slowly like made him unable to feel any emotions, and then. It kind of replaced that with something that he could program, like he had a little remote control or something, and he could make himself have whatever feelings he wanted. And if I remember, the book went through like the story, it was a, a short story, he went through like a phase of reprogramming himself for fun, you know, but then I think he, he did something where he, it was, it was, it was pretty mind blowing. Like, I don't think there was that much of a point in mm -hmm. the story at the end, like a lesson or, or a just moral a transhumanist, thing. like this is coming, get ready. More awesome. Like, yeah, this is the sort of wrestling we're going to have to do. Yeah. It is really well, interesting I mean, to think people, about. Like, oh, sorry. If you, if you personally had the moat, like, what would you do? And like, it would be interesting if like, if you really had that much control, you could, you know, change, like you're going into it with your desires and then what button like would you hit? And then would that sort of destroy your urge to change things back or would it change? Yeah. There would have to be some kind of automatic return to the mean, maybe, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Maybe it spikes, but then we'd have to come back. Well, that's just humans now, right? Maybe we, maybe we can at some level, the hedonic treadmill doesn't fuck us, right? But, right. but no, that, no, I don't know the wire, this, the, yeah, the situational wire heading. Right. People have been talking about this for thousands of years mm -hmm. and, and, and usually they come back to is like, like, like having fun can work for a while, but you need a deeper source of happiness is usually the conclusion. If you had the remote right now, what would you do? Yeah. Hmm. What if, what if, what if, what if you could literally decide that having fun was literally thoroughly a hundred percent satisfying to your, ha your needs? There, there are a lot of, you know, this may be something I may regret saying, but they, there are a lot of drug users yeah. who feel that way and they live their life by that principle. Yep. I, it gets me back to equilibrium. Like I, yeah, I use drugs on like not, super legal ones actually mostly legal but uh yeah that for me that feels like i return to equilibrium and then just my meat my meat body like takes me out of it just because mm -hmm. there's genetic things in the family whatever mm -hmm. so that's more more of a stabilization that's just yeah that was just I was trying to back you up on the drug thing what uh continue with that idea no that that, that, that there 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 are some people who prioritize you know fun and they do it the best that they can and this remote would make it easier with fewer side effects but there are people that wouldn't constantly have the fun button yeah. pushed and, and, and want to, to have a, find a deeper, you know, pursuit of virtue or, or pursuit of knowledge or pursuit of truth or, or pursuit of, of just, just, just contentment. Yeah. And wireheading gives you access to that maybe all the time, right? You have it. pursuit of truth right now, right? You hit the button and just everything. Yeah. I mean. Download Wikipedia. <laughs> or, or you don't even need to. You could just be like, ah, yes, pursuit of truth flowing through me. You don't even need to you just sit in your chair. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. I think, so this, this brings to mind, I don't, know, I don't know that much about like Buddhist monks or whatever, but I wonder, my imagination, there's at least some of them who have achieved 
the self-mastery of saying, my ultimate happiness is achieved when I'm sitting here or like sweeping the floor, you know, doing whatever they do to get there. Yep. There's zazen. And the ideal is that they're always feeling, I don't know, are they always feeling permanently contented or is it that content is no longer necessary? I, I don't really understand the distinction. Right. But I think, yeah, they have, they have really technical terms for all these things. I see it because language falls down in the face of stuff yes. like this. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you need jargon of some type, like, yeah, the jhanas, is that even how you pronounce it? Like, I, I don't I even don't know. know. No, I'm not a Buddhist, but again, that's a post-rat, post-rat, post-rat path. People kind of go often in that direction as well. I don't know. But then was Buddha the ultimate rationalist? Well, Buddha is a mission. Uh, yeah, once transcended. Once you get omniscient, you don't need rationality anymore. Because mm, you perceive all of it. Because you know everything. Because your right. brain's no longer lying to you. There it is. Is that it? Probably. Ooh, that's, yeah. So transcendence, enlightenment is your brain no longer lies to you? Well, I mean, yes. And Part of it. I mean, your brain still tells you that you have an unobstructed field of vision or an uninterrupted field of vision. <laughs> but, but, but if you're omniscient, you know what everything looks like without needing to have your eyes open. Yeah, you know, I think omniscience is like an infinity or a divide by zero mm. in, in my calculus. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think uh, the Buddhist stuff is like interesting because the connection between if you've met someone who's done a lot of acid before or like the hippies, yeah. you know, all this stuff about like, oh, I'm a part of everything, I'm one with everyone. And that's sort of like the omniscience you will get from meditating. Mm -hmm. And there is a connection between the two that uh, both like psychedelics and meditating. It quiets like the default <laughs> mode network in right. your brain. Yep. So it's not surprising that they're having like similar effects, but it's yes. kind of like dissolving the self. And then it's like, ah, I'm a part of everything because there is no self. So if you think about it from that way, it can just be more like narrowly explained by that. It's interesting. And also, even if, even if it was the other way around, right, where it actually fills in your whole map, just because your whole map is filled in doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's correct, <laughs> right? Yeah, that is the thing with Buddha. I think, yeah, you're just, you just, uh, part of it is accepting that. I don't know, not human anymore, like an alien for me on some level, like Jesus, like all these people, right? They're kind of fucking aliens. Like, I don't know, like they're, they're the, maybe the most virtuous, so they're supposed to be perfect, but like, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have access to their brains. Yeah. I, I, I would lay down money on the other thing. I need to go grab something to drink if I'm going to stay here any longer. Okay. <laughs> Good talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thus ends part one of ACX Everywhere 2023 DC edition. Part two continues a little bit later in the evening, and we start with a conversation with Brian Kaplan, also a professor at George Mason University. He recommends, well, among other things, reading Russian literature instead of science fiction. And then we get into Manifold Markets, uh, the obvious pro-cat bias on Manifold, and then a bunch of other interesting things. Stay tuned. Should be up in a couple days. And thanks for tuning in.